everyone. Uh, I'm Seven Investing Lead Advisor Anirban Mahanti, and today it's my pleasure to have Kyle Holden. Uh, he's uh, works at Customer Success Success at Okta, and you know he's been in the in, in let's say in the thick of it in 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 the in the field working in software software as a services. And he has basically worked in uh, customer success, which is what we're going to talk about today for over eight years, since 2013. Uh, he cut his teeth at, uh, at a company called Relias, which is basically an e-learning uh, company for about four years. Then he spent some time at Cisco um, and, um, and in an enterprise SaaS company, a search company, which he didn't name. He didn't tell me the name, but let's assume that you know, it's an enterprise search company. And, and now at Okta, uh, which is an identity and access management company. Uh, he's based out of uh, uh, Riley uh, in North Carolina. And I'm going to actually pass it over to Kyle to you know, tell us a little bit first about his, um, just his background, you know, education, work experience, um, and then a bit about his investing as to, you know, because we want to, we want to also hear a little bit about, you know, how he got started with investing, what, what did he learn from where and where he's at before we sort of jump into the meat of the matter, which would be, you know, we talk a, a lot about customer success. And this, and this is going to be a very important conversation for anybody who's in, uh, who's investing in enterprise software, especially in software as a service, because there are a lot of numbers that are thrown out like dollar-based net retention or customer churn or, you know, just net expansion rates. Um, what do these mean and why are they important is, is you know, you, but we get the perspective from a person on the ground who works with, uh, you know, large customers, um, customers who manage a large number of employees. Um, over to you, Kyle. Thanks, Anirban. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to share. Yeah, I've, um, I've been in customer success for eight years. Uh, I'm a native of North Carolina. I was born and raised on a farm in eastern North Carolina. Uh, studied biomedical engineering at North Carolina State. Um, I only stayed in medical engineering uh, for about 10 months. Uh, I, it was not what I thought it was going to be. Four years of education to 10 months in the field. It was, uh, you can tell Max that uh, it just biotech, medical devices. Uh, it was great from the outside, but once I got on the inside, just not the not the field or the profession that I wanted to get into, but uh, I really, to be honest with you, I kind of stumbled into enterprise software uh, and customer success. Uh, I got on board with an e-learning LMS company based here in Cary called Relias. They were actually a portfolio company of Vista Equity Partners. Uh, they, two companies got acquired and merged into one to form Relias in 2012. Uh, and I joined Relias in the support organization in 2013. Uh, within six months, was on the customer success team and uh, did that for three and a half more years at Relias, really just cutting my teeth in customer success. Um, you know, back then, customer success was really about maybe two or three, three or four years old. So uh, it was one of those fields where we were all kind of learning. And uh, I was there when Relias got sold by Vista to Bertelsmann, which is a large media conglomerate out of Germany. So I got to see kind of the private equity model over to the conglomerate model. And uh, a few years later, ended up going to Cisco, uh, worked in their uh, uh, IT security, uh, enterprise software security uh, program for 18 months, left Cisco, went to an enterprise search company called Lucidworks. Um, they actually compete with companies like Elastic, Caveo, Senequa. Uh, I was only there for a handful of months and uh, before finding my way to, uh, to Okta, uh, which 
funny enough, I heard about Okta through an investment newsletter that I subscribed to back in 2017 when I was at Cisco. And I kept hearing customers talk about this company called Okta and, and their identity being managed there. And uh, so it just kind of came on my radar uh, and then finally landed a, a position in customer success at Okta. And today I'm a senior customer success manager working with enterprise customers ranging from five to 25,000 employees, uh, global companies. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of my background in customer success. Uh, you asked about investing. Uh, I came to investing like probably most people, which was kind of through the value side, the, the Ben Graham, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett uh, side of the house. Um, and to be honest with you, like a lot of it really started with dividend growth investing. I was at a place in 2015 where I was looking to take uh, this cash flow I was generating through my profession, turn it into some type of income. I was like, I'm working for income. How can I take this, this energy that I'm, I'm earning and turn it into passive streams of income that I can build from there? So it started with dividend growth investing, kind of evolved into value investing as I got and uh, started reading more blogs and investor newsletters. Um, and then from value investing, I started to realize that there's a lot of companies that I just really don't understand. I mean, I'm looking for these, these really like, I guess you could say kind of un, un, like blemished pennies. And I just, it just wasn't really like what I was most interested in. So uh, that kind of evolved into compounders, um, uh, really, really high growth uh, companies like SaaS businesses. Um, and over the last two years, I've, I've kind of evolved and branched out into learning more about the crypto space and what's going on in, in that industry, specifically Bitcoin and, and what's happening in the underlying blockchain technologies. But um, SaaS is, is really what I'm most interested in, uh, enterprise software and kind of what's happening in that space. And it just seems that, at least with what I'm seeing in the investing world, that as SaaS continues to pave, pave the way when it comes to uh, how to operate a business, there's a lot of other, other industries that are starting to switch to this, to this software type model uh, because they understand the long-term uh, implications of what it can mean for investors, but also for their business with locking up revenue and contracts and the ability to grow relationships with customers. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, so that's how it's kind of evolved over time. I think some of it has to do with, with the industry that I work in. Uh, so maybe I'm a little biased, but, um, but yeah, that's a little bit about my background. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, one of the things I say is that once an engineer, always an engineer. And in the beauty <laughs> of certain educations, engineering is one of them, um, yep. is, uh, you know, you, it's not just a specific discipline, right, that you learn, right? You learn a lot of other skills that are widely applicable, right? And I tell people, like, yep. if you've got a PhD once, then, you know, uh, well, most people would only do a PhD once. But if you've got a PhD, then you've basically got an ability to think um, if you completed the degree, then that <laughs> is something that is applicable in many different domains, right? So it's, it's, you know, we don't realize, but a lot of education actually transfers over, skills transfer over. Um, and of course, yep. you learn at the job. Um, and, and I'm not saying that education is essential. If you look at some of the great entrepreneurs, they, they didn't have an education, but, that's, uh, but they have educated themselves other ways, right? I mean, so yep. education is important. Uh, degree per se is not necessarily important, but what you learned is kind of important. Love that. Love the journey as a, you know, um, everyone, including myself, we all start there because that's what I think is most in your face, right? Uh, what is known <laughs> as deep, well, it's actually called a deep value, which is like, you know, trying to find, you know, uh, 50 cent dollars, right? Yeah. Uh, that's a lot <laughs> of what a lot of people do. And very quickly people realize that that's probably even, even, even the great Warren Buffett no longer invests that way. That was his Correct. very early days of investing when he was looking for cigar butts, basically. Um, yeah. Yep. So that is fantastic. 
let's jump into the meat of the matter which we want to talk about is so i'm going to try to you know it's going to be hard but let's try to do top down so in yep. for for uh for our listeners can you set the stage as to what is customer success and basically maybe you know say this is in, in the context of let's say an enterprise software company um you know what is the role of customers? Let's you know. Let's try to do a three-minute sort of a two to three-minute uh, high-level take. What what is it? Why is it important? What does it do? Yeah, totally. And, and I think when we get into some of the history of customer success and how it came to be, uh, what a customer success manager does will make a little bit more sense. Um, so the easiest way that I've I've been able to describe what a what a CSM is, a customer success manager is, uh, is we're essentially a personal trainer for software purchasers. That's that's what we do. Um, an executive, a company comes to a software vendor, to an enterprise software company, and is looking for a product because they're hoping that that product will solve a specific business solution or provide a certain business solution, a certain business outcome for their organization. Um, and so they buy that product. Um, our goal in customer success is really just to act like a personal trainer, right? So let's say somebody gets out of the hospital um, and they go directly into physical therapy. Uh, professional services, if, if folks are kind of wondering where customer success lives within an organization, professional services is almost like a physical therapist. Uh, they do really good work, but they're not supposed to be with you forever. They're supposed to solve a very specific problem and then they'll pass you off to, uh, and you'll be outside of the physical therapy realm. In many cases, you'll leave and you'll go to a gym to continue your training, rehabilitation. And in many cases, you'll pick up a personal trainer. That's what a customer success manager does. We work with executives, chief information officers, chief technology officers, chief information and security officers or CISOs uh, to help make sure that the, the, the product that they purchase for the problem they're trying to solve actually gets solved with the platform. Um, and our, our role is designed to help them navigate that journey from A to Z and turn any potential mountains in that, in that process into molehills into molehills. Um, you know, our, what we're trying to do as CSMs is also connect these executives, these businesses with potentially other businesses that have solved similar problems. So we're trying to create some thought leadership there to help them solve these problems in a collaborative fashion uh, using the, the software that they purchased from our organization. So it's really, we're, we're helping drive outcomes. Um, you know, you could think about what we do as the same thing that a financial advisor is trying to do from a client. They're trying to get them from this point to a, a point in the future where maybe they have some financial independence. They, you know, they, they can buy that house they always wanted to buy. They can retire when they wanted to, maybe earlier than they wanted to. Our goal is to work with executives to help them solve really critical business challenges within their organization. Some of that can lead to cost savings for the organization. Some of it can lead to opportunities for them to drive additional revenue. Uh, some of it could be they're just wanting to enhance the customer experience. They want to differentiate themselves in the market in terms of customer experience. Um, our goal is to help drive that that value uh, with the product they purchase from us. Fantastic! I love that analogy uh, of um, personal trainers. And, and you know, I think maybe before I ask the next question, just a clarification, right? So, professional services. Um, that could be outsourced as well, right? Typically, yep. it could go to an IT services firm, whereas typically customer success is internal. Is that is that yep. is that a good generalization? Yeah, in most cases, professional services. Sometimes you will have it in house, but a lot of times, as organizations get larger, um, it is very hard for them to rely on their internal sales and professional services team to continue driving growth at that level. Uh, even if you think about Cisco. 
and I think you can find this in the in the annual reports, uh, 85% of Cisco's revenue comes through channel partners. It doesn't actually come from their field reps. Uh, and same thing happens is these channel partners uh, will not only sell the product, but they'll also pr offer professional services. Customer uh, success is a little bit different. In most cases, it's very, there's a very high percentage of customer success professionals that are housed within the company that, that uh, built and, uh, and serviced the software. So uh, you are starting to see customer success teams pop up in channel partners. Uh, partners are starting to, uh, or distribution partners are starting to offer CS services, CS-like services. But for the vast majority of, of organizations, especially companies that are small, um, small enterprise companies, as well as growing into mid, mid cap, mid size enterprises, uh, customer success, that motion is going to be in house 99% uh, of the time. Right. And for some time, because I, I, it makes sense when you're yep. talking about a large company with lots of sales, then you've got, since you're using channel partners, you might as well also use them potentially for customer success. <laughs> Okay. Yep. Um, give us a little bit of a, you know, take us, uh, you know, down the memory lane sort of thing. Tell us, because the software has undergone, I guess, over the last maybe decade or more, a lot of change, right? So we've gone from, um, you know, maintenance and, you know, perpetual licenses to sort of this annual cadence or maybe, you know, whatever, two years, three years, whatever is the license contract. We've gone from people yep. having the software, which then you, you know, you'd buy upgrade packs or you would not, but you'd have a perpetual, you'd have a maintenance uh, pack assigned with it versus now where you basically always have the up-to-date version of the software, but you pay on a regular cadence. Um, so th there's been changes to how software is sold and how software is distributed. How's, how, where did customer success originate from and how has it evolved? You know, well, just your viewpoint of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you really think about software, software originally started with hardware. Uh, you can't put software on nothing, right? So, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, originally organizations were selling hardware and software was bundled into that hardware. Uh, organizations got access to the, to the software as part of their hardware, uh, hardware bundle. Um, and as that continued to, to progress and grow, obviously software became a bigger part of buying hardware. And eventually what ended up happening is that organizations didn't want to have the CapEx expense, the overhead of just buying a ton of hardware. That's where the term uh, shelfware came from. There were a lot of organizations that would buy all this hardware and would buy these software licenses for that hardware. But then it would just go on a shelf because they didn't have anybody to help them successfully deploy it, get value out of that hardware. And so um, I think back in, in terms of customer or at least the, the SaaS model. So. The way that software used to be sold is that you would buy, if anybody remembers this, maybe like with personal computing, you would buy a computer and then you would buy Windows 95 licensing for that computer. And then when Windows 98 came out, you had to buy another license to upgrade to the Windows 98 operating system. That is how companies sold software uh, back in the day, back in the 90s and the 2000s. And so companies would have to make this really high upfront investment to buy the, these essentially these versions of software to run on the hardware that they had purchased from whoever, Cisco, Microsoft, Apple, whoever it was. Um, there were companies that had started doing subscription type models. Uh, the most famous one is Salesforce. And I think some of that is uh, because of the type of software that Salesforce offers. Salesforce is an enterprise software, not a vertical specific software. So it really touches so many parts of, of the market. But 
I think where the shift really started to happen, where folks stopped buying perpetual licenses, uh, where and they had to buy new licenses every time new versions came out, and they made the shift to, to subscription-based software. I think uh, the financial crisis of 2008 really ha- uh, helped with that. Uh, because a lot of companies got really conscious about their balance sheet. They, they got really conscious about their financials and making these large upfront investments in software. And then that software and hardware living on a shelf and not actually getting used for four or five years. And then a sales rep comes back in four or five years later and is like, hey, give me a whole lot more money for this new version we just came out with. Uh, companies just realized that they were wasting a lot of money on, on stuff that they weren't using and weren't getting any value out of. And so um, the model that Salesforce kind of pioneered as an enterprise software company uh, with their CRM tool is really what companies started to shift to after 2008 and 2009, uh, because in terms of upfront investment, uh, software as a service is not nearly as expensive as perpetual licensing. Um, now, the problem the problem that this presented is that sales reps could not just come into an organization, sell this massive software package, and then leave for four or five years. You know, they could take their commission and leave and go to the next guy and get another contract, go to the next guy. Uh, software presented this really interesting dynamic where if the customer was not getting value out of the out of the software package they just purchased from you, uh, they could cancel their contract in a year or two and say, "Hey, we're going to go somewhere else. We're gonna we're gonna take our services elsewhere. This wasn't a valuable use of time." And the problem there is that sales are designed to go find new business. That's what the sales team is designed to do. Um, so, who is going to help them get value out of the software? Um, I've talked with colleagues about their experiences in the past, and I asked them. I was like, "Who?" When you bought software in the eight, in the '90s and the 2000s, like who helped you outside of professional services helping you originally get it set up? If you had use cases or you had strategies that you want to solve with that software, uh, who was there to help you kind of navigate and and pursue achieving that outcome? And their response to me was, "Well, we try to reach out to our sales rep, but they could only help us so much because they were focused on new business." Professional services, we had to pay for that. So in many cases, we had to get on Reddit forums or uh, go talk to other colleagues. And in many cases, we had to figure it out ourselves through documentation, et cetera. It wasn't until the customer success manager emerged on the scene in the late 2000s, early 2010s, um, that that problem for organizations was really fixed. And so um, it was the shift from perpetual licensing, where customers would only buy software every four or five years, to you sign a multi-year contract and you get access to that software, all of the version updates, all of the new stuff, all the new functionality that comes with that is part of your contract. You don't have to buy that as an extra, uh, as, as an additional thing. Um, that is what a lot of customers uh, uh, really started buying into, but they needed somebody that could help them see success with it. Otherwise, they were going to cancel that contract and go somewhere else. Um, whereas with perpetual licensing, you've already made the investment. There's nowhere to go. Like you're, you're stuck with it. So you either buy the next thing. Uh, and, and in many cases, like when the next thing came out, you couldn't talk about what, what you just bought five years earlier. Cause that was outdated. Like that was, it was done with, there was no, you had to, you had to move on to the next thing. And for compliance reasons, a lot of companies were forced to buy whether they wanted to or not. So there's a long history there. But I think the financial crisis really helped accelerate SaaS as a as a, not only a business model, but as a, as a financial model for organizations uh, and customer success really grew out of that. Fantastic. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I think one of the biggest things SaaS did is changed how the spending worked, right? Because you yes. didn't have upfront spending, which required a lot of people to think, oh, my gosh, I have to spend, <laughs> you know, several million dollars to buy this thing. Instead, now it became a several thousand dollar thing, which is just recurring for the companies too. It meant that over 
the long term, let's say 10 years, they actually landed up making more money just because they were taking less money up front, <laughs> um, which, which is fantastic. But, I, you know, the term, like maybe this describes it, the term that I've heard, including some CEOs uh, make to me is, um, you know, like they, so if, you know, if you use this Savannah model of uh, from when uh, we as humans lived in the wild, the model was like, you know, you have hunters who go and hunt for new things or, you know, the big meals and then you have gatherers who, which basically, and maybe it's just injustice to one or the other, um, gatherers basically who, you know, gathered uh, stuff, you know, fruits and vegetables and things like that. But I've always looked at customer success as people who are, as exactly as the name that, you know, says that they help the, the customer succeed. And if the customer succeeds, then they are likely to renew. So it's a, it's a, it's a basically a retention play. At the same time, they're likely to use your other products because they just love what you're offering them, right? So if you can make them feel successful and they're solving their problems, becoming more productive, you know, getting more value uh, out of what they have spent, they're likely to, you know, channel more dollars to you. Um, I guess the thing that I would like you to maybe deep do a little bit of dive on, this is from an investor's point of view, is where does customer success show up in on, on sort of an income statement, right? Is it part of sales and marketing? Is it part of cost of goods sold, you know, or you just disappear somewhere <laughs> else on the line? You know, where are you guys sitting in, in yep. the income statement? Yeah, so it's it shouldn't be a complicated question. Um, technically, customer success should live uh, in the cost of goods sold uh, right there with support. Uh, we're, we're a part of the product. So when a customer signs a contract with an organization that has a customer success motion available, uh, we're, a part of, we're a part of that motion. Uh, we're just as much of that motion as, as the platform they're using, as a support organization they call into for technical support. Uh, so we technically should live in cost of goods sold. Um, the reason it's a little bit more complicated than that is it depends on the philosophy of the company and where they're at in their growth cycle. Um, so some customer success organizations, especially organizations that are a little bit smaller and maybe they're either trying to justify uh, their place in the market, they're trying to uh, hit certain metrics so that they can look good to raise money for venture capital, et cetera. They may compensate uh, customer success managers not only on product adoption, but on identifying new business opportunities within existing accounts. Well, if customer success is compensated on identifying and helping drive new business, well, technically, we could be listed in sales and marketing uh, from an accounting perspective. And they may also want to do that because if they can list us in sales and marketing, they can end up driving up gross margins for their software platform, which really, which really looks good in the private market to venture capital, you know, private equity, et cetera. So um, we should live in COGS um, and the cost of goods sold, uh, but depending on where an organization is in their, in their growth cycle, uh, you may find that we're listed in sales and marketing. It's not always easy to parse out. Uh, normally you, you might have to reach out to a CSM on LinkedIn to find out how they're compensated if they're willing to share that uh, for you to kind of get an idea of where that, where they might live in that organization. Okay, uh, so th this is fantastic insight. And the reason I, I, I'd say this is fantastic insight is, you know, let me put my investor hat on. And um, so, you know, we talk about these dollar-based net retention numbers, right? So dollar-based net retention yep. at a very high level calculates, okay, from the customers that I have today, which were there with me a year ago, how much did they land up spending this year versus last year? And you just measure the percentage increase. And so if you say 120%, that basically means that that customer group that you retained, 
uh, with in, you know, so that you're basically taking out churn, but then upsell and churn is taken out is say 20% basically mean 120% means that 20% more sales from the same group. Now, I'm a big fan of simple models, right? So let's assume what uh, Kyle just told us that let's say that you should live all in, um, in, in cost of goods sold. That means theoretically speaking, if we had sales and marketing equal to zero and you had no new sales in this particular year where you had 120% um, uh, dollar-based net expansion uh, or dollar-based net retention, then you... Um, effectively got 20% extra growth with no additional sales and marketing line. Like, and this is theoretical because of course, eventually, you know, you're going to run out of customers that you can upsell to. But uh, the, the point is that the model then is very profitable, right? Because you had, let's say gross margin was 80% and sales and marketing is a huge expense for many companies, right? Uh, similarly, if you say put all of that number and from a simple modeling point of view in, in sales and marketing, you could again say they make the same argument saying, okay, now your gross margin has actually gone up. So now your gross margin went up from maybe 80% to maybe 85, 90%. So you look like a very high gross margin business. And then you could say, well, okay, I could do the same thing and get rid of the sales and marketing team, uh, you know, fictitiously for one year and I just spent on customer success and I still got 20% growth, right? So uh, I, I think that just in a way, um, a lot of times the this is the hidden profitability of software models, right? I mean, in steady state, these things should be cash flow machines. So, I mean, you know, uh, if you want yeah. to make a comment on that, uh, you know, feel free, because as I said, I have abstract. Yeah, it's, but, you know, yeah. Well, I, I think even just at a consumer level, I, I remember when Amazon Prime was $99 a year, and now Amazon Prime is $129 a year. So, like, they have driven essentially 130% growth uh, in terms of annual subscriptions on what consumers pay for Amazon Prime. Um, that's ultimately what the customer assessment is uh, within an organization. You mentioned the hunter-gatherer model. I've heard that, but I've never heard it inside of customer success organizations. Uh, normally the way within enterprise, uh, and I don't, I don't know why, I've always heard it from the outside, but not, not inside of, of the circles. Um, generally, the way we look at, I guess, the, the hunter-gatherer model is we look at it as land, adopt, expand, renew, where sales is responsible for landing, customer success is responsible for adoption of the platform. Um, through that adoption, if the customer is having a good experience, they're solving use cases, they're finding value in the platform, in many cases in our daily, weekly, monthly interactions with customers, we help them solve those use cases, other use cases pop up. And that is where the expansion piece comes from, is we identify other use cases that we can help solve. We pass that back to the sales organization to see if they can help drive the sale of that new use case, whether the customer is going to buy additional uh, um, bandwidth for a usage-based product or whether they're going to buy additional seats for a license-based product. And then ultimately, if they've had a really good experience or solving these use cases and the product is essentially paying for itself, that's where the renewal comes in and the customer ends up renewing uh, at the same rate they've already renewed at or they're buying additional products, which is where that dollar-based net retention uh, rate comes into. Um, I think folks don't, and I kind of saw this when I was at Relias uh, and, and I learned a lot uh, as a portfolio company of Vista Equity in that organizations that are a little bit smaller that really haven't hit that uh, that billion dollar run rate yet. Um, net retention is an important number and you want to see that grow. But in many cases, revenue growth is what is what is most important. I mean, if you have $250, in a $250 million in ARR 
but sales is bringing in 50 to 75 million in ARR every year. Sales is really driving the ship. Where it starts to shift and where customer success really becomes important is when you start getting to a billion dollars, but you're still running at, at 120% net retention rate, where your customer success organization and the folks that are working behind the scenes that are a part of the cost of good souls, not sales and marketing, those folks are driving $200 million a year plus in additional revenue. Well, if sales is only doing 50 to 75 million in revenue, your, your customer success team actually drove more revenue for the organization than the sales team did. Like they, and, and we're a lot cheaper than the sales and marketing expense. And so um, it's not that we're competing with sales. It's just that as, a, as an organization is starting to scale and it's starting to get to really high revenue rates, uh, the existing customer base actually becomes your largest revenue driver, not new business. It doesn't mean you don't go after new business. You're still going to expand there, but your existing customer base actually becomes this really profitable and prosperous fruit bed that if you can uh, continue to drive use cases, help them solve uh their business outcomes, what they're trying to accomplish with a software platform, uh, that that base can actually drive your revenue 15, 20, 25% annually for five, 10 years uh, if you continue to solve those use cases for them without new sales, without new businesses, new logos coming into the organization. So it's a, it's a really powerful model once you start to see what happens as an organization starts to scale. Fantastic. And, 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 the, and the important point here, we note that you know, a retail company, if it could grow at 10% to 15%, that, that would be regarded as <laughs> fabulous, right? So you get, you're yep. getting like a 20, 25%, maybe 15 to 25%, somewhere in that range from customer success. And uh, yeah, I, I love that point you made about billion dollars as, you know, it's like $100 million of ARR is sort of what I regard as the number that you need at the bare minimum to sort of, you know, think that you're scaling, right? But you need a billion dollars <laughs> yep. to really actually start making the sort of the customer success really start counting at, at scale, right? Yep. And, you know, 20% of that is, is 200 million, as you pointed. So that's a great point to have. Um, in, in terms of, I guess, and this is, you know, we, we didn't have this, we had a script of questions that I was going to ask and you know, I'll ask those, but I was going to ask this. Um, or maybe I'll ask I'll ask the the question the script first, <laughs> then I'll ask that one uh, because maybe you'll you'll answer it. Um, uh, why maybe answering one of these questions? So in terms of how I guess sales and marketing teams versus customer successes and so on. So how's the, how are these evaluated in organizations? And I guess maybe make a part of this could be you know is there a difference in how I guess what you'd call a good um, you know, a company which has got a good land and expand motion versus maybe not so good land and expand motion, right? Is there a difference in how they treat the various teams and how those teams, I guess, play with each other, right? Because you need the different parts yep. to talk to each other in a seamless way. So you can maybe expand on sort of how these things are viewed internally from the viewpoint of, you know, what is an ideal land and expand motion or land and expand company versus, um, you know, not so ideal case. And again, don't have to take names, but just, you know, if you could broad, yeah, broad yeah. strokes. Yeah, and that, that's why I said customer success varies across organizations based on where they're at and their growth cycle, the size of the company, uh, just their philosophy, uh, what you'll find. And there's really kind of two ends of the spectrum. You'll find some organizations, especially folks who are looking for professions, they're trying to break into customer success. Um, you'll find companies that will use the term customer success as a cover for someone who's basically an inside sales rep. Uh, really what they're, they're wanting a CSM to do is to operate almost like an inside sales rep to help their field account executives uh, sell more product. But then you'll have other companies that use customer success as a cover for uh, technical support 
uh, where they're really looking for somebody who's coming in and is going to do nothing for a customer except for reactive technical support, break fix. Uh, they're not focused on strategy. And so uh, obviously as customer success has evolved, I think early on uh, there was a lot of, especially in organizations, there was a lot of friction between sales and customer success uh, with, with customer success coming in to take our roles. Like how do we, how do we play together? Um, ultimately, uh, sales and customer success are two sides of the same coin. Uh, sales is heads, we're tails. You know, their tails, we're heads. Like we're, we're the same side. Uh, we're two sides of the same coin. Uh, the, the goal is to work together. So sales lands the opportunity. They're the ones out prospecting, looking for new business, showcasing the product, showing showing customers what's possible, putting together P, uh, POCs. Uh, proof of concepts to show customers what they can potentially accomplish. Um, when that gets passed internally, then it passes into the customer success organization to help make true on what sales promised uh, the customer. So, right. So like you have to have this alignment where sales can't over promise on what the software can do because customer success can only deliver so much uh, based on what the platform can do. So you kind of have to have this symbiotic relationship because if we can deliver uh, on what sales promise, let's say sales under promises and we can over deliver, well, that's a great recipe for the customer looking for additional use cases that then sales can drive additional business with that existing customer. And it's so much cheaper and a lot easier to drive new business with an existing customer than it is to go find a brand new customer to sell into. And so we're really two sides of the same coin. But once that customer comes into the organization, customer success managers act like the, uh, I know we're in football season, American football season here in uh, in the US. It just started last night. Um, we're like the quarterback of an account. So our entire role is to work directly with the executives, with the exec sponsor, the buyer, uh, the, the person who signed the contract, the person who who bought the software platform to help them realize that value. And our goal is to coordinate internally uh, the organizations we work for with professional services, with support, with product, with sales, uh, with executive leadership to make sure that we can get the right resources, the right assets uh, in the right place at the right time to help that customer realize the value that sales ultimately showed them that they could accomplish. And so um, that's kind of how we work within an organization. Uh, a lot of times you'll have a renewals organization that does, they get involved towards the last six to nine months of a customer's contract. So they come in to help negotiate the contract. Uh, do they want to negotiate new terms uh, or they want to add new products, which would be expansion. Uh, that's when they get involved. But for the most part, it's really sales and customer success working together to help deliver on, on promises uh, so they can continue to grow that partnership with, with customers. I love that explanation. I was going to ask this. Um, so, you know, because customer success is working closely with the customer, right? Do you uh, land up sometimes finding use cases that your company that you're working for could solve, but hasn't yet solved? So it basically feeds into the R&D pipeline in some way. Yep. We, uh, we find that all the time. Uh, in many cases, you'll end up running into use cases where we find a product deficiency, a product gap that gets passed back to our product team. It gets put on, if it gets evaluated that it's affecting enough customers and we think that it should be addressed in a timely fashion and urgent fashion, uh, it'll get put into the R&D roadmap, uh, the next sprint cycle, and uh, you'll see it come to fruition for customers. In other cases, uh, customers, and you, I, I've been a part of these uh, over the last year with customers that I work with, where we work together with customers to do customer advisory boards to find out what, what do customers want out of our platform that it doesn't currently deliver. Uh, and that, in, that helps inform product roadmap decisions. Uh, those decisions by product are not made in a silo. Uh, in many cases, they're driven by 
the desires, needs of customers, um, whether it's short-term needs, medium-term needs. Uh, Sometimes customers will have some insight into where the platform, where the product should go over the long term. Uh, A lot of times executive leadership kind of plays a role in driving that vision. But um, yeah, we, we, we sit right there seeing like, Here's a use case we could solve. We can solve 80% of it, but here's 20% that maybe we need to bring a partner into because maybe a partner has a piece of functionality or a product that fills that gap that we currently don't do. Either we're not planning to, or it's not on our roadmap yet. Uh, Sometimes it helps us get a gauge for, do we need to make an acquisition into that new market segment because we need to solve that? Um, yeah, we, we sit on the front lines with customers uh, and are a part of those discussions uh, in real time. Ali, this was a fantastic conversation. So, uh, you know, to, maybe I'll ask you to summarize instead of me trying to summarize. Uh, what, <laughs> what, what would be the sort of three things with a little bit of an investor hat, right? So when you look at an enterprise software company and you think about uh, customer success and sales and marketing and you know all those beautiful numbers that you know we get a lot of these non-gap numbers that people are sometimes cynical about but i say that every number tells you a story to some extent or the other what are some yep. things that you could think you know and maybe if you wanted to even go further to you know distinguish between say you know if it's a mid cap with an arr let's say in you know less than 500 million or whatever it is you want to use as a cutoff then you know these are things sort of you know are interesting to look at uh, it doesn't have to be a recipe as such, but this yep. would be interesting and in why versus, you know, if it's, it's a billion dollar plus or a $10 billion company, you know, like your behemoth, like a Salesforce, then this is what I would look at because this tells me something. Uh, and I'm putting you on the spot because this was not on the script <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> or, or a script of questions. So if you, you know, again, I'm just interested in your professional sort of, you know, as a professional person on the ground, what are the things that you see and what, you know, what 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 do you make of it man three things that's a tough one so three things that i'm trying make, to put my make investor it two, on. even yeah, yeah well, or maybe even one. Um, well <laughs> the first thing like just from a customer success perspective uh we are tightly tied to that dollar-based net retention ratio so uh anytime that you see a company that is uh, succeeding at a very high level uh, with a high dollar base net retention ratio, uh, some of these companies and and in terms of like excellent, like world class companies are going to be at 120 percent or higher. Um, so companies that are doing, I mean, I think Snowflake is 150, 160. Like they are doing a really good job. Uh, the customer success teams that is a direct reflection of how well the customer success motion is is operating within an organization. Um, <clears throat> In terms of like being able to evaluate whether customer success motion is, I mean, the dollar-based net retention ratio is really going to tell you a lot there. You could look at Glassdoor reviews uh, to see how folks, you know, how to pass customer success managers or even current uh, rate their current company. Uh, Because generally, if a customer success organization, if you find through Glassdoor reviews that the reviews are really high for a period of time from CSMs and now they've started to trail off, Something might be happening within the organization uh, that doesn't show up in the financials yet, but it probably will once some of the remaining performance obligations start, uh, you know, the deferred revenue, uh, as they used to call it, start kind of coming off of the uh, off of the books. Some of that could be, uh, and I've, I've seen this, where organizations really start struggling to land new business and they, uh, whether it's whether it's because the product isn't as good as it should be. And in many cases, that that is what drives it, right? Like it is very hard to compete as a number three or a number four product in Gartner's Magic Quadrant with the number one leader. 
is very hard because most of your conversations with customers are always like, yeah, but such and such is doing that or such and like, you're always like competing. So number one, it's really hard to compete there. Um, but uh, a lot of times organizations that are struggling, especially when they're making, trying to make new sales, uh, they will push that on the customer success managers because we're working directly with the executives. And a lot of times you'll start seeing, see at least from the inside, you'll see the CSM's comp change from license adoption and um, uh, success of the platform to our comp will start ch uh, changing to where we get compensated based on new business. And so they start pushing some of the sales motion, expanding the sales force with internal folks. Uh, that might be an indicator that the platform is not operating or is not doing uh, what what the the product team says uh, that it that it should be doing. So that may show up with some glass door reviews if you start seeing CSMs complaining about how their comp structure has changed. But for the most part, um, I mean, CSMs are, are right in the middle of everything that's going on in technology. We're working with executives that are trying to pioneer, uh, you know, digital futures, trying to change the landscape for their end users, for their internal workforce. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying out new security postures. We're getting to see all of that real time. The ransomware attacks that people hear about in the news, we see it impacting our customers. Like we see our customers having to fight that, deal with it, how they're protecting themselves from it. Uh, we're seeing them make, uh, you know, all the blocking and tackling of what an investor may see in a 10K or from an annual presentation, uh, we're, we're on the front lines uh, working with customers to help them solve those, those problems. So it's, uh, it's, been, it's been an amazing profession. It's great working with the executives that I've had a bad a privilege working with, um, but it's just cool to see what companies are doing across the landscape, the innovation that's going on, uh, how companies are trying to use different software plat platforms to disrupt their competitors or just disrupt the landscape. Um, it's, been, it's been great. So. That wasn't three, uh, but it was, I mean, really like it really just boils down to one. If you want to know as an investor, how well a CS organization is doing at a company, and it's not always a reflection of CS. Uh, in many cases, it's a reflection of how well that company is executing on their product platform. Um, CS just kind of surfs that wave. Uh, you know, we can, we might can drive some additional value uh, alpha out of that, but uh, the number one thing to pay attention to in terms of effective CSM teams is that dollar-based net retention ratio. Yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, you know, you might have the best CSM team, but if you have, don't have a good product, it doesn't work. If you don't have good <laughs> R&D, yes. then, you know, then also it doesn't work. And ultimately, as you said, if you're the number three or number four and the, <laughs> enterprise, you know, and the Fortune 500 is looking to buy, well, if I'm Fortune 500, why am I going to buy number three unless, you know, if you're number three, right? why wouldn't I buy right. number one, right? So buying, being number one actually is a very, you know, it's, it's one of those, you know, the horse is bolted and has, has leadership position. It's difficult at that point to catch up to that, you know, they need to make several mistakes is what I say, you know, it's, 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 it's common to think of, oh, that's a smaller company or whatever. It's a smaller company for a reason. And uh, if you innovate and do something completely different, yes, you can become a leader in some other magic quadrant, but in this magic quadrant, it's sort of taken unless these guys kind of falter is what, what I think. And um, I guess the only thing, you know, while you were speaking, the, the thing I was thinking about is, when you sort of have this transition happen between, you know, when the CSM gets pushed to make more sales, that actually might not even be a reflection of, it might actually be a reflection of the TAM. Maybe the TAM, so total addressable yep. market is actually not as big as was made out to be. And, and therefore you need to either move into adjacent areas to sort of expand the TAM or you need to do something. And that's where, you know, your sales and marketing is not landing new sales. And therefore you're basically now more reliant uh, more and more reliant yep. now on well, your and, customer success. 
And, and what you'll find a lot of times is that when that shift happens, customer success managers actually lose their reputation with the customer as an unbiased voice, as a strategic mm-hmm. uh, consultant. Because a lot of times executives will be very honest with us about what they're trying to accomplish because they know we're not trying to sell to them. But the moment that we get into a motion where we're being asked to sell into an organization, and I get it, some organizations have to go through that. It's just my opinion on, on how I think a CS organization should run. Uh, we end up losing some of that trusted advisor uh, reputation with organizations. But I hadn't actually thought of uh, maybe the TAM was a lot smaller than executives originally uh, estimated. That's a that's a new one. I haven't I haven't thought of that. But I'm going to pay attention to that as I as I look at uh, at companies now. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, but you know, Kyle, thank you very much for spending time with us. Um, you know, I know it's Friday evening for you, uh, which um, which means I'm impinging on your weekend time. <laughs> but thank you very much for sharing uh, your thoughts. You know, uh, we love uh, at Seven Investing talking with people on the ground, people who are in the know, people who sort of are in the thick of it. Because you know, as I, I can read the 10K and the 10Q, and you know, there's only so much you can learn from the 10K and 10Q, and those are all very nicely crafted, right? They're crafted by experts, and then crafted, I guess, looked over by lawyers. So the language, you know, yep. it's it's again, it's good to know what's <laughs> happening in the ground because it gives you a broader perspective as well. It's not just about a particular company, but about the broader area. So thank you very much for sharing, and uh, you know, sharing your experiences, your thoughts, and you know, what's happening on the ground. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciated the opportunity in your A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.